All right, well, good evening. Welcome everyone listening online and, of course, those in the parking lot. We appreciate you taking the time to be here and those of you present in the auditorium. Invite your Bibles, invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Genesis, the 39th chapter. Uh, you can invite the Bible into your life. I suppose you could word it that way. But I invite you to open to 39th chapter. We are going to be in chapters 39 through 42 this evening. Thank you for being here. Thank you for continuing to be interested in our study of the book of Genesis. And uh, we concluded last week by talking about Judah and Tamar. And we kind of gave a glimpse into what was going to happen in chapter 39 by contrasting the attitude and the promiscuous ways of Judah in chapter 38 with the holy uh, and righteous ways of Joseph in chapter 39. Hopefully I didn't give away too much of the story because most of us are familiar with 39. Just talking with David a few minutes ago that once you get to chapter 39, not only does the, do the last uh, 12 chapters get a little bit more familiar, but they're, they're a little bit easier to read. Uh, but they are filled with so much good stuff, and we're going to do our best to kind of pull out as much as we can over the next three weeks as we close out the year and close out uh, our study of Genesis. Let's take a moment, and before we read and study, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're very thankful for you and for your Son and for the Holy Spirit, for the work that you have done in creating this world and speaking it into existence and showing us your love through your Son and providing us your word through the Spirit. Thank you, Father, for men like Joseph who lived and served, sacrificed and dedicated themselves to service to you. And help us to learn from him tonight. We pray that you'll be with the children. We're so very thankful that we are blessed with a large number of children that are not just interested in being here, but enthused about learning and have parents who share that enthusiasm. Thank you, Father, for those members who are unable to be here tonight that are going through some difficulties. And we pray that you're, you're, you'll be with them during their challenges. And that you'll bless us in our efforts, in all that we do. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, chapter 39. Uh, before we get to chapter 39, look back at chapter 37, verse 36, which in my Bible is open to the same page, um, page 34. Reminds me, I did a radio program years ago, and someone called in and said, yeah, on page 322, there's this, and there's clearly someone who didn't have a lot of Bible depth to them, which is fine. Uh, I said, well, sir, I said, I don't know what page that is. I said, because every Bible is different. But in my Bible, I don't have to turn any pages. And I look at verse 36, which is the last verse of chapter 37, and it says, the Midianites had sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. And then chapter 38, we kind of says, we kind of said, has a great big parenthesis around it. And Moses or whoever the author is takes this break uh, to insert into here 
whether it be chronological or not, the story of Judah and Tamar. And then at the end of that parenthesis, chapter 38, verse 30, we get to the last uh, phrase about the sons of Judah. And then verse 39, uh, verse 1 of chapter 39 starts with, Now Joseph had been taken. So if you read 37, 36, and then 39.1, you see where the story continues here. So it's kind of interesting to make sure that you are important to get all that kind of piece together here. Um, where does Joseph find himself in Egypt? What kind of position is he placed in? Yeah, some, some call him a house manager. Some call him an administrator. Certainly the idea of being an administrator seems to be an appropriate word or a manager of Potiphar's house. Um, he is in a position of high authority to Potiphar, uh, who is uh, an officer of favor, captain of the guard, who was an Egyptian. He bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there, verse 1. And it says, verse 2, that the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Um, simply to point all that out, and that is, I think, uh, Dave, but I think my, I don't know, it's going here. Did you do that, Lee, or did I do that? I did it, thank you. Okay. Uh, Joseph is blessed by God, finds himself in this high position. One of the big takeaways that we're going to give away early is that God blesses us when we trust him and that when we rely on God and that we continue to do what he asks us to do, things tend to work out. Sometimes in the short run, they don't work out very well. And if you're familiar with what happens here in chapters 39 and 40, things work out very badly for Joseph. This is not going well for him, but things end up going very well when the story concludes. And by the time you get to chapters 47, 48, 49, you can see, and 50, you can see God's wisdom in all of this uh, coming to fruition. Verse 3 was something that I thought was interesting. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. So note, if you would, here is yet another time. We've seen it with Abimelech, who was a pagan leader. We see it here with Potiphar, who is powerful in the Egyptian empire, that a pagan leader is noticing the blessings that come from the Lord. And so uh, he says, you, Joseph, are going to be over my house. I like the, uh, what Linda said, the idea of being a house manager this house superintendent, and he's going to give him everything that he has under his charge. And I put the word all in there with an asterisk next to it because there's one thing that he kept from him. What was the one thing that the scriptures say was kept from Joseph? Potiphar's wife, Potiphar's wife right? Okay. So look in verse 6 where it says, He left all that he had in Joseph's hand, did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and so obviously he's over the house, but yet is not privy to a relationship with this woman. And that seems to be a kind of precursor or a prelude to how this story is going to develop. Very rarely in the Bible is um, a person's good looks 
noted. Uh, there's another character in the Old Testament whose good looks was noted. Who was that? Just for bonus points for the night. Well, you know what? There's, there's more than more than one. <laughs> I, I, was, I was not thinking of Saul, but Saul was this tall character of good looks. David was called a good-looking man. Uh, I've long thought that the Bible was ever written about me. I would get a description of being good-looking as well. Uh, on these particular occasions. But it seems to be kind of a little bit of a picture here of Potiphar's wife, who does not get a name, so we'll just call her Potiphar's wife throughout our story, Mrs. Potiphar, we may call her. Um, what does she do? How does she react to this? What or Describe her, her ways over the next five to eight verses. She desired him. She went after him. She, you could use the word pestered him day after day after day. And day after day after day, Joseph continued to say no. In fact, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, I should have put these in the flip reverse, but um, verse 9, he says, There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness? And then I think the most important phrase in verse 9 is sin against God. Would it have been a sin against um, Potiphar? Of course it would have. It, it would have wronged Potiphar. But Joseph is, is of this attitude, and he's got this kind of high-level spiritual point of view or spiritual depth where he says, I cannot do this in a sin against God. And this is after God has allowed all the things to transpire in, chapters 30, in chapter 37 that landed him in a pit or in a dungeon, be sold off into slavery, almost be killed by his own brothers. Uh, it, it seems to me... That this is a great comparison or contrast with chapter 38, where Judah goes out and he seeks an inappropriate relationship, whereas Joseph, his younger brother, is not seeking that, but it is put on him. And it would have been very easy for him to succumb to that temptation. Uh, but he says, I will not do this. I will not sin against God. So verse 10, it was as she spoke to Joseph day by day that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. But it happened about this time. And this is one of my favorite verses in chapter 39. Day by day uh, th that when he went into the house to do his work, none of the men of the house was inside. So He's in the wrong place at the wrong time, but it has nothing to do with his poor decisions. That she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. What does this tell us about Joseph? If we know nothing else about Joseph, if these are the only three verses, four verses we read about Joseph, what do we learn about Joseph here in this, in this text? Good moral character. This is a man of strong moral character. And without any doubt, he is completely dedicated to the Lord and to the Lord's will. He is a, he is a man of integrity. Um, I used the word integrity uh, in a Filipino study a few weeks ago, a Zoom study. And um, 
they asked, what does integrity mean? What does integrity mean? I won't tell you what I told them. But it was a word in English that they didn't compute very well. I love what David Toronto says. Doing the right thing even when nobody sees it. And we say nobody because we always know that God sees it. So when you have a temptation and you can get away with the sin, when you have an opportunity to go someplace, be with someone, say something, think something, do something, whatever the case may be, nobody's going to know about it. But we know that God always knows. And God is the ultimate judge. He's the ultimate one to whom we have to give an answer. So Joseph is this picture of complete dedication to God and complete dedication to his will. So what does Potiphar do? I'm sorry, what does Potiphar's wife do on this occasion? She lies. In fact, um, I did not share my slides with David. Uh, We do collaborate sometimes. Sometimes we refuse to talk to each other during the day. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I like David a lot. Um, But she lies. She makes up this big story and she says, look what he has done. He has, he has tried to abuse me. He has tried to defile me. He has tried to uh, mistreat me. And here I have proof. And it reminds me of what is it, 2 Timothy 2, where, and I'll make reference to this in the applications, where Paul tells Timothy to do what when it comes to temptation? Flee them, F-L-E-E, to flee those temptations. Run away from them. And here you have Joseph literally running away from temptation. Out of the house saying, I cannot do this. The Bible doesn't tell us whether or not he was thinking about it or not. But that doesn't matter. He doesn't, he doesn't, not only does he not want to do wrong, he doesn't want to even have the appearance of doing wrong. That is a man of strong integrity, doing right when no one is looking, and good, strong moral character, which is what David Creech pointed out just a minute or so ago. So what ends up happening to Joseph, at least in the, in the short run? When Potiphar comes home, gets the report, and what happens? He's cast into prison. You may have, if you have a study Bible or you've studied this before, if you're familiar with Egyptian culture, um, what, maybe this is a leading question, but what was the punishment typically for doing what Joseph looked like he did? I think I heard someone, someone, there's, there's two stories I've heard. One is death. That just the idea of going after, first of all, he's a slave, he's an outsider, he's not Egyptian, and he's going after Egyptian royalty, and he's trying to attack her. Look at the, the mean guy that he is. So he's deserving of death. Uh, some have said uh, that I read, read one story that if it wasn't death, that the punishment was a thousand lashes. And that may very well promote death. Or if it doesn't, you may wish to be dead by that point. Uh, either way, they took this very seriously when, when, you, when you defiled uh, a female of this uh, stature. But Joseph is punished by imprisonment. Any thoughts on that? Because I have, I mean, one of the things is God is obviously protecting him. Any other thoughts? Other than maybe Potiphar didn't really believe the wife. 
Nate just said, and uh, if, again, if you have a long comment, we'll let uh, David get to you. If it's a shorter comment, I'll repeat it. Very good point that it's possible. We don't know for sure. But did Potiphar had been around Joseph long enough that he knew his character and knew his integrity. And so some have surmised that perhaps um, he, Potiphar, didn't fully buy into the story that Mrs. Potiphar was telling. I have no idea whether that's the case or not. We can ask God on the day of judgment or after the day of judgment once we get into heaven. Uh, David Trot over here. But clearly God is in control of this because if Joseph dies, then Genesis ends at chapter 39 and it kind of has a pretty abrupt end to it, does it not? Uh, Brother Trotto. Could have been, I guess, a little bit in appreciation of the stewardship he had with his household. That he had somewhat of mercy upon him? That very well could be. You know, given the fact that he had treated his household so well that he says, you know what? You, this may be deserving of a, a of a physical punishment or of death. But because you have been so good to my house and because everything that you touch turns to gold, um, pretty much, I'm going to spare you. Uh, makes uh, and so it goes back to this overall point that we can all agree on here, and that is God is providing for Joseph. God is making sure that Joseph is going to be protected. Okay? All right, very good comments uh, and good uh, things to think about. Let's move on to chapter 40 here. Uh, and chapter 40 is relatively brief, only 23 verses. Uh, let's go through and make three or four, maybe five uh, highlights here very quickly. It's the story about two prisoners. Joseph, well, three prisoners, really. Joseph is in prison, uh, and who does he meet there? He meets two men, two individuals. Who are these two people? What are their occupations? Or, or maybe more appropriately, what were their occupations to which they would ultimately be restored, one of them? One was a chief baker, and one was the uh, either the cupbearer or the butler depending on the version that you're reading and what kind of uh, Bible you're reading from. In fact, in the New King James, I think it interchanges the words, if I remember correctly, um, for some reason. I was thinking that. Either way. Okay. Um, so we see the introduction to the butler and the baker to the king. What was uh, We understand what a, a baker was. Um, what was a cupbearer? Okay, so this is someone who takes care of their, their, their drink, their cup. And one of the things that I'm told about Egyptian culture, and not just Egyptian culture, but other ancient cultures, is that because these individuals would have to be so trusted, because they were so close to the king, they have the capacity to kill him. Um, or to hurt him in some way, that they are very trusted individuals. And so chances are they're probably going to know secrets. They're going to know things that, about the empire that nobody else knows. Um, maybe they're used as advisors. We know that uh, who was a famous cupbearer that we just talked about that Jonathan just talked about three months ago? Nehemiah, right? He was a cupbearer to the king in that particular time, much later in the story of the Bible. Um, and so you have the dreams of prisoners. So we've already had dreams 
in chapter 37, um, we've seen dreams earlier than that, but chapter 37 was where Joseph dreamed those two dreams and his brothers scoffed at the notion. His own dad, Jacob, said basically, why are you dreaming these silly things? But he kept it in mind, the Bible says. Uh, We're going to see all that come true. But here you see more dreams again. Each person had a dream, each of the two individuals. Um, And we see that down in about verse 8. We have each had a dream. There's no interpreter of it. And this isn't a society where the people really believe in uh, dreams meaning something. Um, they They needed Sigmund Freud long before Freud was around, right? And do not interpretations belong to God. Tell them to me, verse 8. Chief Butler told his dream. Behold my dream, a vine before me. The vine was three branches. It was though it budded, its blossoms shot forth. Its clusters brought forth ripe grapes. The Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. I took the grapes, pressed them into the Pharaoh's cup, placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Joseph says, here's the interpretation in three, three branches of three days. Within the three days, verse 13, he's going to, here's the phrase, lift up your head and restore you to your place. And then he says, but remember me when it is well with you. Please show kindness to me. Verse 16, when the chief baker saw the interpretation was good, he said, I also had a dream and there were three white baskets on my head. And the uppermost basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh and the birds ate them out of the basket. Joseph says, here's the interpretation. Within three days, verse 19, Pharaoh will lift off your head from you. So he takes a play off of the previous thing. So you, you can almost see the chief baker saying, tell me, tell me my dream. I, I, I love what happened to the cupbearer dream. Uh, tell me my dream. And he says, he's going to lift off your head in verse 19, hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh from you. And I still remember this haunting me in Bible class when I was a little boy. This really, this really bothered me, this image. I had this image of this dead man, the birds eating him. This scared me when I was a little kid. And it still kind of scares me a little bit. Um, but two drastically different dreams. Why they dreamed that and why those interpretations, uh, well, it's not just their interpretations. We know that Joseph explains the dreams, and we know that the interpretations come true. Sure enough, he's restored, the, the cupbearer or the butler is restored to his position. And what does he do regarding Joseph in the short term? He forgets all about him. Um, there's different ways of looking at that. Some have said that he, maybe he forgot about him in the short term, or he, or he, he, I, I, he forgot about him. He didn't remember him in the in the initial term. It wasn't until Pharaoh later has a dream. He's like, oh, I know someone that can help us out here. We'll get to that here in a minute. But the other guy ends up dead. And sure enough, um, they birds ate him, ate his body. Interestingly, here in verse 23, the chief butler did not remember Joseph but forgot him. Joseph is again mistreated or forgotten by someone. So if there was ever a person in history besides Jesus, and maybe besides Job, I guess there's a a long list of people who are mistreated or who had bad things happen to them and it wasn't their own fault. And they did not give up on God. Joseph has to be in that list of these great characters who say, you know what, I'm going to continue to stand up for what's right. I'm going to continue to do what's correct. 
Um, because how long does he remain in prison for additionally? Two more years, right? Chapter 41, verse 1. It takes two years before um, he's remembered and has the opportunity to be redeemed. Okay, anything else on chapter 40 before we get to 41 and 42? All right, let's go ahead then to chapter 41. If I remember, 41 was long. Yeah, it was 57 verses. I remember looking through this thing. That's a long chapter. Let's make uh, the highlights of it, though, uh, in chapter 41. First of all, two years pass. Now Pharaoh has a dream. So Pharaoh dreams here. Pharaoh dreams about what kind of animals? Cows. How many cows? Seven. When in doubt, guess seven, right, in the Bible. He has these dreams about cows. And I still remember this bothered. I was a very visual learner, I guess, as a child because I remember thinking about these uh, ugly, gaunt cows eating the big cows. And that, that disturbed me because cows are, are herbivores, right? They don't eat – the cows don't eat the other cows. I, not typically. I don't I mean – I guess not. I mean I've never seen it. No. You know, they, they eat grass and straw, hay and stuff like that. I'm from the city. What do I know? Twelve years in California ended all my agrarian uh, understanding. Um, verse 8. It came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled. He sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt, all the wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. So Pharaoh is really distressed over this dream, over the, the gaunt cows eating the, the healthy cows. And so the butler says, wait just a minute here. Verse 9, he says, I remember my faults this day. I believe it's the, I think the ESV says, I remember my offenses. Okay, it does say my offenses. So it's almost like he's kicking himself saying, oh man, two years ago, I ran across this guy in prison and he told me what was going to happen to me. He told me what was going to happen to the baker and it came true. And I bet that he, or I, I suppose that he can probably help you as well. So sure enough, um, compare if you would Joseph to the Egyptian magicians in their dream interpretations. Verse 8, we read they were unable to interpret them for Pharaoh. Verse 16, Joseph answered and says, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. So again, Joseph has not given up on God. And God has clearly not given up on Joseph. And he says, I can do it. But I want the, the credit not to go to me. I want it to go to God. Reminds me of Matthew 5 verse 16 where it says, Let your light so shine before men that they may glorify your Father in heaven. Uh, and it's not about glorifying us. It's about reflecting it back on God. I think I've got an application for that as well. So what happens? He interprets the dreams and sure enough they come true. The gaunt and ugly cows ate up the first seven. The fat cows, when they had eaten them up, no one would have known they had eaten them, for they were just as ugly as at the beginning. So I awoke, and I saw in my dream, and suddenly seven heads came up on one stalk full of good. So then he, he gives them that uh, aspect of the dream. And we see where Joseph um, interprets the dreams uh, and says there's going to be years of plenty. There are going to be years of famine. And then 
Joseph does something that's kind of interesting without really being prompted. Uh, I don't. Verse 32, the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because of things established by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. Verse 32 is the end of the interpretation side of things, but then Joseph kind of steps out on a limb, or it uh, seems to me kind of maybe taking a chance by saying, if I could give you some advice, <laughs> and maybe uh, running the risk of a, a little bit of danger and being presumptuous that way, but he says, if I could give you some advice, what is the advice that he gives? What is the counsel that he provides in short? Yeah, have have some preparation, have some planning that over the course of the next few years, rather than than using all the grain, start putting some aside, storing it in a silo um, that, or in some sort of a barn or something. And that way, when the years of few come, of few harvest or no harvest, when the famine really kicks in, we're going to have grain, and that's going to make it good for Egypt, for you, in two ways. One, it's going to make it so that your people don't starve, and two, what's it going to do? It's going to be a moneymaker because you're going to have people coming from all over the world to buy grain from you. And in verse uh, 36, that all the food shall be as a reserve of the land in seven years, that the land may not perish in the famine. Verse 37, the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. So, um, who gets that job of being the chief administrator? Well, we know who gets that job. Joseph uh, gets the job of being in charge of this great project. So he becomes kind of a, a minister uh, a assistant, a secretary of agriculture, so to speak, to take care of this particular job. He's given a position of great authority. One of the interesting things that I really never noticed, but I was, I was reading this uh, again in the last couple of days, I thought it was just kind of, kind of curious. Uh, verse 41 42, took a signet ring off his hand, put it on Joseph's hand, and he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. This is yet another occasion where clothing plays a role in the life of Joseph. The first aspect of his clothing was that he was given by his father a coat of many colors, showing his favoritism and his prestige in chapter 37. Well, his brothers took that and gave him another set of clothes, so to speak, that of you are, are useless to us and you might as well be dead to us. And had it not been for Reuben, he may have very well been dead. Uh, and then now you have in uh, chapter 41, you have more clothing given to Joseph. I thought that's kind of neat to think about the clothing motif continued here. And then Joseph is given what? By Pharaoh. Two things, actually. One one physical thing and one more figurative. He's given a name change, right? And he's given a wife. And his wife, in an, in an era where wife's names were not uh, always um, noted, 
We see her name there in chapter 41, verse 45. So he's given a wife and given a new name. The Bible doesn't say a lot about that. But why do you, why do my, why might we suppose that he was given a new name? Say, say it one more time. So part of this seems to be a transition from a slave and a servant to a place of royalty. And the other thing is this name is Egyptian in nature as compared to what we would maybe premature to call it Jewish. Uh, but it was certainly of Israel and God-ordained names. Um, so interesting that he gets it. And then in, in many ways what it seems that Pharaoh, it seems to me, is trying to do is trying to culturalize him so that he can be – because there's probably going to be some eyebrows raised over, wait a minute, I have to listen to the advice and heed the counsel and pay taxes. In some ways I'm paying taxes of my grain to this foreigner. Well, let's not call him a foreigner. Let's call him this new name and make him uh, subject to the cultures of Egypt. All right, time is escaping us more than I thought it would, so let's uh, go forward here a little bit. Joseph's dream interpretations come true uh, in the subsequent verses, and Joseph then has two sons and glorifies God with their names. In verse is 50, Joseph were born... Two Joseph were born, two sons before the years of famine came. Um, Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. That becomes very familiar to us in the story of the Old Testament. And the name of the second was Ephraim, which also becomes important to us as well. Because we know that when we look at the tribes, we look at maps, there's no such thing as an area called Joseph, right? There's an area called Manasseh and an area called Ephraim because they get this important double portion, so to speak. All right, uh, I'll save, try to save 60 seconds to two minutes for comments, but I do want to talk about chapter 42. We're going to go through here very quickly. Jacob and the 11 sons uh, have a problem, like everybody else in Canaan, uh, and that wasn't privy to the dreams. We don't have any food, guys. What are we going to do? And Jacob says to the 11 sons, he says, you guys go to Egypt because I heard on the news that there's a lot of food in Egypt. And he sends not 11, but he sends 10, right? Who does he not send? Does not send Benjamin because verses 3 and 4, we can still see where favoritism is still playing somewhat of a role uh, in his choices. Um, they show up and they've got to go to the commissioner of agriculture. I'm making that name up here. And uh, they don't know who this man is and they don't recognize him, partly because he probably uh, looks more Egyptian, maybe in the way that he's dressed. Uh, plus, they're scared to death. They're, they've long forgotten about, well, they haven't forgotten about Joseph, as we see here in just a minute. But they've kind of pushed Joseph out of their memories. And so, Joseph, how does he react to the brothers in, in the next 11 verses or so? The Bible says he talked in what way to them? Harshly to them. Uh, which is interesting. Uh, is he testing them? Is he letting out his frustration? Um, uh, he, we do know he's going to test them 
in some way or another. We know that he does test them. And then verse 21, we will read verse 21. They said to one another, we are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. And Reuben, verse 22, finally gets his, his chance to say, I told you so. Verse 22, he says, did I not speak to you saying, do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen. Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. Poor Reuben here. Uh, so the sons are going to go back. The ten of them are going to go back, except now it's ten minus one. So it's, it's the story of the sons that keep getting, getting misplaced or, or reduced from the story. Reuben presumably would have been the one that had been kept back as the oldest. But Joseph says, I'm going to keep, he ends up keeping who as collateral? Simeon is kept. So Simeon is kept by Joseph, and he sends the brothers back to Canaan with food and with something else. What else do they return with? Say again? Well, before, before, before Benjamin comes. What's in the sacks? But money. So one of them stops to feed their camels and opens up, and you can see the blood drain from his face. He's like, oh, no. The money is here. And then they, uh, it seems as if that happens over the course of some time, but they all open their bags up, and the money is there. So now what do they look like? They look like thieves. So now when they go back, now they've got Simeon kept hostage. Um, what else did they let Joseph know about? One little detail. Joseph says, is there anybody else? And what did they say? The youngest brothers left back home with dad. Joseph says, thank you so much for the information. When Jacob finds out about that, Jacob loses his, his top. And he says, oh, why did you tell them that there was Benjamin? Losing any of you is no big deal. Losing him is a big deal. No, I'm kidding. I made that part up. But you can kind of see where the brothers are like, at this point, they're just desperate for anything. So Joseph returns their money. Um, Reuben again steps up to try to help. Reuben says... In exchange for um, if something happens, you can do what to my sons? You can kill them. That sounds very rational to me. <laughs> you know, just, I mean, just, okay, you can kill my sons. So uh, there in verses 37 to 38. Um, here. And I want to read verse 37 to 38 very quickly here before we stop for... Um, uh, some comments here. Reuben spoke to his father, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you, but put him in my hands and I'll bring him back to you. My son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead. He is left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring it down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. I want to go ahead and read one more verse, even though chapter 43 is what we're going to talk next week. But verse 43 says, the famine was severe in the land. So some time passes between 42.38 and 43.1, where the famine went from severe to more severe. And now they've got to go back. And it sets up this opportunity for the whole Benjamin thing to transpire, which we'll get into. Okay, actually we have a... a an extra two minutes that I didn't think I was going to have. I thought I had another slide on here, but I've just got observations and lessons because I repeated 42. Um, thoughts, comments, 
questions, things we've confused you on. Hopefully we haven't confused too much before we talk about our four observations. Let's do this. Let's, let's, before we get to my four observations, do you have, because we've got an extra 90 seconds that I wasn't planning on having, um, what, what did the Holy Spirit want us to get out of this text? And it's more than just the story of Joseph and the brothers. It's, there's some lesson there. What are those lessons? God always blesses the faithful. And I've got that in my four, in some words or another. But yeah, God always blesses the faithful. And you think about um, all the hardships of Job and how he was blessed. You think about the hardships of the apostles who went through so much persecution. Think about uh, what Peter had to endure. Think about what the early apostles did. And remember in Acts chapter 4 or 5, um, 432 I think it is, or 436, or 5, somewhere in Acts or 4 or 5, um, the apostles were beaten and their reaction was, yippee, right? We are so glad that we are able to suffer for his cause. So they were faithful to the end, even in spite of all the ugliness that happened their way. And then you have Paul, who says, in perils of deep, and perils of water, and he has the whole peril section, right? And just goes through all the difficulties that he endured. God blesses the faithful, does not give up on them. That should be very encouraging to each of us as well. Anything else? Yes, uh, Brother Kerry. And here comes the microphone. Blessing doesn't always or may not come in this life. The blessing may just come in the end. That's a really good point. And, and who comes to mind for me is Stephen. Stephen did not receive blessings in this life. What was he? He was stoned in Acts chapter 7, right? That's a really good observation. I'm glad you brought that up. So we've got to remember that the temporal blessings in this life that we enjoy they don't always come as a result of faithful living. Sometimes we die. Sometimes we lose our jobs. Sometimes we lose our families. Sometimes we lose our friendships. Sometimes we lose our homes, whatever the case may be. Yeah. Okay, let me give you my four, which are very similar to what uh, Brother Nathan and Carrie pointed out. But going back to where we started, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, fleeing temptations of any sort always pays off. It'll always pay off. We will never regret refusing to give in to a temptation. Let me say that one. We'll never regret refusing to say, you know what? I, I guess the point that I'm making is we will regret giving in to temptation and sinning. We look back and we say, I wish I would have done that. I wish I would have acted that way. But... A year later, two years later, three years later, 20 years later, when we say, you know what, I didn't do that. It would have brought me temporal joy or temporal financial gain, but I didn't do it. I'm glad I didn't do it. So it always pays off. And that was the case with Joseph, even though he ended up in prison. Uh, and if the story ended there in chapter 39, chapter 40 in prison, he would still be blessed. 
by God in an eternal sense like Carrie was talking about. All right, number two, sometimes we'll be mistreated and forgotten by people but never by God. So the brothers forgot uh, uh, Joseph. Uh, the the uh, prisoner, fellow prisoner, forgot Joseph for that period of two years. And it's like, is anybody listening? Is anybody out there? Does anybody care about me? But God always takes care of us. Going back to God always blessing the faithful, whether it be in this life or in the afterlife. Uh, always trust God and give him the credit that he's due, just like Joseph. Joseph says, it's not in me to interpret the dreams. So when someone compliments your honesty, your integrity, when someone talks about the fact that you're a nice person, uh, you, nothing wrong with saying thank you for being kind to me. But I'm just I'm just trying to do what God wants me to do. Always put the focus back where it belongs. I'm just trying to be like Jesus. After all, he's perfect. And last but not least, past sins have a way of coming back to haunt us, which is exactly what Reuben was saying there in 42 and 22. Uh, 20, yeah, 22. Did I not speak to you saying we are going to pay for this boy and for the blood that we almost shed? Um, I tried to stop you then. And now it's coming back to haunt us. That's the case as always. All right. Thank you very much for your great comments, your kind listening. And we'll continue from there a week from tonight, Lord willing.